This morning we have part one of a study I've entitled, The Many Beatitudes. So if you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, I have a few photo slides for you in a moment because there's a common misconception about this passage. And I want to share with you as we look at this, and, and I will give you a sense You know, sometimes people really get off on the wrong track when they look at the gospel message because they focus in on the differences in a negative light. And it is, in fact, the differences in the gospel that is one of the attestations to the fact that they're true. Because if they had been plagiarized, in other words, one gospel author had talked to the other gospel author and they said, okay, well, let's write this. One of the sure signs in court that you have true testimony is that the testimony is not exactly the same. If someone comes and, and gives exactly the same speech, uh, you know, four or five times in a row, and yet they were somewhat disassociated at the time of the event, you would say that they talk to each other and that they simply are repeating what they've heard. One of the beauties of the gospel accounts is they're not exactly the same. You have to remember who's being written to here by Dr. Luke, who is a Gentile. He is going to write to Gentiles. And so as he writes to Gentiles, he writes with a Gentile mindset. And can I say to you that it appears that the Gentiles then, as we are today, had somewhat of a short attention span. Amen? We're, we're, we kind of move in that circle still to this day. We, we kind of like our stuff, as I wrote here, you know, the Cliff Notes version. Uh, let me see a show of hands. How many of you, be honest, are in that group of people that always read the synopsis in the back of the book first? Uh, I do. I just, I flip back there and it's like, okay, this book's gonna be about, it gives you the basic points. That's something that we do in, in our Western world. And I believe that to some extent what we're seeing here is that with the Gospel author Luke. He's giving a rather abbreviated, rather condensed, cliff notes, fast food version, if you will, uh, of the Beatitudes. And so as we unfold this passage today, I believe that this message and Matthew's message found in Matthew's chapters 5 through 7. Now think on this for a moment. Matthew takes three and a half chapters, 111 verses. Okay? What you have here is 29 verses. It's very condensed in Luke's Gospel. You have one page, basically, in Luke's Gospel. You have three and a half pages in Matthew's Gospel. But this really is the Sermon on the Mount. It just simply is an abbreviated version of it. And I believe when we unfold it a little bit, you'll see that it has all of the key points that are found in Matthew's Gospel. But they are condensed down to the bare essentials. And we're going to see that this week and then as we unfold the Sermon on the Mount over the next several Sundays. And so this morning, uh, the many Beatitudes, if you will. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. God, thanks so much for your word that is life to us. Lord, these seemingly contradictory and impossible commands that have been given to us as your children, Lord, ways of living, attitudes that we ought to have if we're really your kids. Lord, they seem impossible, but they're not impossible by the Spirit. And Lord, it is in the Spirit that we live out these things. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through the power of your word this morning. Bless us with the understanding of these words that you wrote 
through the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just give you a little journey here, pictorially, if you will. As I spoke last week, the horns of Hatin are actually visible there in the background of this slide that's behind me. And what you're looking down on is a little bit higher place, down to the actual location that is believed that the Sermon on the Mount was preached. And as is uh, tradition throughout the region, uh, pretty much the Catholic Church owns most of the uh, holy sites, if you will, and this is among those that they do own. There's a Franciscan uh, church there on the Mount of the Beatitudes, which is the supposed real location. But one of the problems with this passage is that Matthew seems to record uh, a different picture of where it happened, uh, you have it on the mountain and you have it on the plain. And I want to show you exactly how that can happen. And so as you look up in this third slide, you'll see the Church of the Beatitudes there in the background. And there is, in fact, a very large open plain that sits out directly in front of the mount from which it's believed that Jesus preached this message. So it's very, very possible and highly likely that as Luke records one setting and Matthew records another, they are both true. It is on a mountain. You look down on it. Uh, previously in the first slide, you're looking at it from uh, a little bit lower down the mountain in this particular slide. And as we move to the next one, you get a picture that it actually is a plain. And so uh, you have the hill and you have the level place. You have what Matthew declared and you have what Luke de- declared in exactly the same location. And then by the time you make it down to the water's edge to the what's known as the cove of the sower... Uh, you can see that it's actually a rather large natural amphitheater that sits directly below this area. So if it is as it was believed, Jesus preached this message to his disciples, and he was speaking to this large crowd, it would have been very probable uh, that it would have been in this location. And so as you see that little tree that's in kind of the center, almost dead in the center of this particular picture, uh, you'll notice that that particular location is on the edge of the water. And as I shared with you, there have been a number of acoustical studies from that location that you could put somewhere between 10,000 people and 100,000 people in this basic location. And with a human voice, you can simply speak, and because of the acoustics of the area there and because of the water and what it does to sound, it would easily carry up. And so what you're now looking at is the whole picture. So you can kind of see how there's a hill and there's a level place directly below it. And then there's the place that Jesus would have been, which is directly below that. And so as you put this whole thing together, uh, remember that Matthew had his tax collection booth on the Via Maris, or the road that circumvented uh, the the Sea of Galilee. Uh, That location is still the same location of the road that goes around the Sea of Galilee today, and underneath the pavement there is evidence of the old Roman road. And so this is likely the location that Jesus spoke. And even if it's not, you can get an understanding of the topography of the area to where it would have been, they could have picked any one of those hills and been a sermon on the mount that was preached to the disciples and to the multitudes that would have been very easily uh, spoken to multitudes of thousands of people without any problem whatsoever. And it could have both been on a hill and been on a plateau or a plain. And both would still be true. And so it's important, family of God, that you don't get in that critical mode of the skeptic 
that says, well, they're not exactly the same. Because as you can see in these slides, both things are actually true. It is on a hill, and it's also on a level place. And so as you look at your Bible, open and broaden your mind to see the larger picture that the Lord, in fact, was validating the truth of his word by not making each gospel writer speak the exact same words, that they're different for a reason. They're different because of who they were spoken to. They're different because of the attitude of the hearer. We all know this, don't we? Do we not have to speak to people in a way that they can understand? I can tell you what's going on right now. You do not speak to second and third graders the way you speak to high schoolers. Amen? Nor vice versa. Amen? You, you could not use the same analogies. You could not use the same information. You could not speak the same things to them and have them gain the understanding you want them to have. And the same is true in the gospel accounts. So please understand that as we move forward with the many Beatitudes. In verse 20, now, Jesus lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and they revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. For rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did so to the prophets. And so Luke begins to speak the first words of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And I would just remind you that we'll cover a little more of this next time as we gather together. As Dr. D.A. Carlson uh, reminds us, the, the Greek word that's used here for mountaintop can also be translated plain. So plateau on a mountain is where these things happened. You have to put this in perspective for the larger audience. Though Luke is a Gentile and his letter would go to principally Gentile hearers, you have to remember that was the purpose of the letters then. When people wrote their letters, in other words, John's letter or Luke's letter or Mark's letter, or in, in this particular case, this letter that would go to a Gentile audience, it was being written very purposefully and very willfully by the Holy Spirit. And so what was happening in the larger audience, which it was mostly Jews, and so the hearing of these things would have been much broader, but Luke's vision would be narrow. Do you understand? You, you see, that way, Luke is specifically addressing the Gentile hearers, while the message was to a broader audience of largely Jewish people, it brings the message to where each would receive what they need to get from the message itself. And so for the Jewish people, the word blessing evokes the very things that are being said here are not the source of blessing. The Jewish hearer would think money, food, power, uh, defeated enemies, a full barn, healthy family, all of those things to the larger Jewish audience. They're going, man, that's when you're really blessed. You got a whole bunch of stuff. Can I remind you that the context of this is pretty much the context of our day today, isn't it? Do we not associate actually blessing with stuff, with things, with possessions, with power, 
with, with the things of this world, generally speaking. That's how people actually to this day still see a blessed state. Matter of fact, so much so that I think a lot of times people struggle when they don't have material blessings. I've actually had people come to me, well, I think God hates me. I think I'm cursed of the Lord. That's a Jewish mindset. That's exactly how the Jew under the law thought. Well, he took away everything, so I must be cursed. Do you remember the book of Job? Job thought he was cursed of God, didn't he? Why? Because he lost his money, his possessions, and his family. You see, we've had a problem, family of God, since day one with good people suffering with people who love the Lord hurting, with with people who have dedicated their life to serving God, going through despicable, unthinkable things. We have a problem with that. Because in our minds, we believe that God just simply blesses everyone who's one of His kids with stuff, with things. Can I tell you, pastors get cancer and die? I've had a couple of friends that didn't make it to their mid-50s, dead as doornails, dropped keeled over in the prime of their ministry life. No sin, no obvious thing that God was punishing them for. Don't we think that way sometimes? Well, God must hate me. And yet, not only does He not hate us, Jesus says in this passage that you're actually blessed in things that we think are the exact opposite. In hunger, in poverty, in pain, in being put out and being put off. To us it doesn't make sense. But you see, when these words were spoken, the entire audience was little children, amen? In quotes. They were little children. They were not spiritually mature. The age of grace is unfolding before their very eyes. And so what's their place of comparison? Their place of comparison is the Jewish law. Amen? And the Jewish law was very clear that God blessed those who blessed Him. And that if you had the blessings of God, that you were in God's favor. And so it was actually a right-thinking position for them to think that, hey, you know what, well, you know, we're just going to, you know, if we're not, if we don't have all these things, then God isn't really for us. And so the entire paradigm is about to shift. You see, the law clings to the temporal and the circumstantial, and grace clings to the spiritual and to the internal. Huge shift. This is like from one side all the way to the other side. This is going from I'm blessed if I have to I'm blessed if I am. And that is a different place. One is I'm blessed if my circumstances are good, and the other is I'm blessed even if my circumstances are horrible. One is I'm blessed because God has heaped upon me, and one is, I'm blessed even if God withholds from me. That's diametrically opposite. 
polar opposites. North Pole, South Pole kind of thing. Amen? It's not how we want to think sometimes. Galatians chapter 4, if you care to turn there, verses 1 through 6, it says this. We'll just look at the first four. But now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, these are children. And sometimes in our walks, we kind of go back to being spiritual kids, don't we? We kind of forget the deeper things of God, and we kind of want what the world wants. As long as he is a child, does not differ at all from the slave, though he's master of all. In other words, we have things that we've been given by God that are our inheritance in Christ that we need to simply possess them. But they're possessed in maturity. This is maturity speaking here. They're not possessed in immaturity. And very often, people in an immature Christian state go right back to being like kids. Well, God, just give it to me. You ever notice how kids fight over the dumbest thing? Like the largest portion of a piece of some goodie? You know, like you break it in half, and there's like six crumbs on the one side that are more than the one on the other. Well, ain't got the biggest piece. Parents. The almighty allowance. Have your kids ever found out that you didn't have exact change and you gave somebody an extra dollar? You gave them an extra dollar! You know, and the kids go crazy. It's like, well, you owe me. That's childlike. That's how kids think. It's like, if you give him something, you got to give me something. That's not how the kingdom of God works. Can I say to you that in fact God may be blessing you by taking something away? He did that in my life. I was a multimillionaire before I was 30 years old. And God took it all away. Every bit of it. All of it. The best thing circumstantially that's ever happened to Connie and I. Because I would not be here today I would not be serving the Lord now were it not for the Lord's hand in taking away what were some very good, nice, wonderful things. I like cars. I like houses. I like boats. I like planes. I like all those things. So if God wants to give them back, I'd, I'd take them. <laughs> but I'm glad He took them away because they were hindering my walk with the Lord. And that's a picture of what's going on here. And it says and goes on, but it's under guardians and stewards that are unto the time of the appointed one by the Father. And even so we were children and were in bondage under the elements of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman and born under the law. He says, you know what? As we mature, then we can handle the things that God wants to do in our lives. But spiritual babies don't get it. And so Jesus is now giving a mini set of the Beatitudes to a bunch of spiritual children, babies, who need to know the basis of what it is that their life's going to look like. You see, the twelve needed to hear these things. Amen? He lifted up his eyes towards the disciples. Can you imagine if Jesus had not delivered this thing and then all of a sudden the lives that we know were lived out by them and the Gospels began to unfold? Can you imagine? Because in the Jewish mindset, here's what's going to happen to them. Well, you know, I'm one of the disciples. And their chests are puffed out. And, yep, I know Jesus personally. Got an autographed Jesus shirt. Got an autographed Jesus hat. Got an autographed Jesus book. 
I got everything Jesus E. Okay? That's the mindset that the average person, because most of the disciples were Jews, they had a Jewish mindset. They're thinking, well, we're just going to, we're going to be tough. Do you remember what they did when they were walking with Jesus? The boys started to argue, well, make us great in your kingdom. You remember that part? Now you know why Jesus spoke the Beatitudes to them. Because their natural mindset was, well, we're special. They were special, all right, but not in that way. They were special because they needed extra help. And so he begins to tell them what their life's going to actually look like. They were going to have some radically transformed lives, amen? That's the problem. You, you see, we, we sometimes want the salvation without the radically transformed life. Well, I'm not sure I want that. You ever thought that about some of the things that God's allowed in your life? I'm not sure I want that. I had that today. I woke up this morning, I'm not sure I want that. That's immaturity speaking through sometimes. You see, their lives were going to be transformed from that place that they used to be, from getting. See, that's the way kids think. Give it to me. I want it. And then I can go do something with it. That's childlike thinking. It shifts from there to simply being in spite of circumstances. Do you see the difference? You see, that's the way we need to think about our lives in Christ. God should be able to withhold everything. And I know this sounds tough. I'm not diminishing the difficulty of what's being said here. But God should be able to withhold everything, and we still love Him. We still follow Him. We still cry out as Job did, Yet though you slay me, I will serve you. That I know in my flesh I will stand on this earth and I will see you face to face. If you take my life, I'm still going to serve you. That's where Jesus is going with the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you guys need to start thinking differently. I need to think differently. You need to think differently. And so this Sermon on the Mount, and I, I want to correct some poor theology here. The Sermon on the Mount is not the Gospel. It's not the Gospel. Our president believes that you can get saved by doing and living the Sermon on the Mount. You can't. Jesus Christ alone saves. You have to be saved in order to live the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't know Jesus, this is impossible, folks. You can't get there from there. If you don't know Him, you sure can't live like this. It's also not like we would think of like the Constitution. It's not just a list of stuff that we do in order to prove that we're like Jesus. It's not that either. It is a way that we are now shifted away from the selfish childlike old self, the old man, the unredeemed, the unrenewed, the untransformed, into the new life that we now live in Christ. And it's a completely different way of thinking. It's a completely different way of having an attitude about the world that we're in. It really describes godly character for all intents and purposes. And so when you look at these things, it should not stun you that they're Exactly the opposite of the world. Look at some of these attitudes. 
as Jesus focuses in on them. You, you see, because that's what it is. Stuff is going to happen in your life. Amen? Is there anybody in here who's not had something bad happen in their life? Please raise your hand. Not a hand went up, okay? Bad things happen to good people. And good things happen to bad people. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is how you handle that information. What kind of attitude you have in the midst of that difficulty. Our family is kind of going through it right now. And one of the things that the Lord showed me is, Jeff, what kind of example are you going to be to the flock of God? It'd be pretty easy to kind of withdraw and just go, well, you know, I'm just going through a tough time. I think I need a sabbatical. That wouldn't be the Lord. What would be the Lord is to come live before you exactly what Christ has done in my life. Which is, yeah, there's part of us that's broken and hurting right there. It's touched us. But by the same token, I know that my Redeemer lives. And if God takes Lee home today, we'll follow him shortly. That's the truth. So it is the attitude that we have in absorbing that information. And so it is our attitude towards circumstances. It is our attitude towards people. Anybody ever have a bad attitude towards people? Anybody ever have a bad attitude towards yourself? Are you one of those self-deprecating folks that kind of, you know, you're like an Eeyore? Lost my tail. Kind of wander around like an Eeyore Christian, like nothing good has ever happened to you? How about a bad attitude towards God? Anybody ever have one of those? Oh man, I have. I've had a bad attitude towards God. It's like, Lord, what are you doing? Can't believe you would let that happen in my life. And all of a sudden, I read the Beatitudes, and guess what gets changed? My attitude towards circumstances. My attitude towards people. My attitude towards me. And my attitude towards my God. That's what happens. There's basically just three verses here that describe these things, condense them down for us. And then he emphasizes the essentials for true happiness. Can anyone tell me what's missing from this little list of four things? Begins with S, ends with F. It has two F's, a U and a T. Stuff. There's no stuff in this list. You see, true happiness is faith towards God, faith in God, faith about God. It's love towards others, amen? It's honesty with me. Because you know what? I got issues. I know you didn't know that. I have issues. <laughs> I got issues with me. Sometimes I wake up in the morning, I'm just like, Jeff, you have issues. Yes, I have issues. You probably have issues as well. Probably not everything you think is spot on. Can I? Is that true? Yeah, you're all shaking your head. Uh, got issues. 
You see, but my happiness, my blessedness, that blessed state does not depend on stuff. It depends on my faith in God. It depends on my love towards others, my honesty towards myself, and ultimately my obedience to the things that God says. Amen? You see, I can either believe what He says and do it, or I can not believe what He says and not do it. Choice is mine. But truth still truth. And so Jesus begins to speak these things to the twelve. It's just a truncated version. It's just a, it's just a condensed way. And so he begins by talking to them about this state of blessedness. This powerful, compact message. I believe the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon in the Bible. And if you put together Matthew's account, Luke's accounts, you have some stuff that you're just going like, man, are you kidding me? Wait till we dig into some of these things. You mean I gotta forgive? Yep, you gotta be a forgiver because you were forgiven. You mean I have to be merciful? Yes, you have to be merciful because you've received mercy. I hate that. It's like, no! I don't want to forgive. Anybody ever, you ever struggle with that? I don't want to forgive! Do you know what he did? Do you know what she did? Do you know what he said? Do you know what she said? It's the problem with our world. He said, she said. Amen? You see, Jesus is going to confront that and say, you know, the problem is you, Jeff. Ah. The problem is you. There's still a little bit of that unredeemed stuff going on there. And it's not what's happening. It's what you do with what's happening. That's the problem. Because I can do how many things through Christ who strengthens me? Amen. And without Him, I can do nothing. Both are true. All things through Him, nothing without Him. And so the Beatitudes are how to get to all things. How to, how to draw near to the Lord. So that as you draw near, He transforms the way you process stuff. The way you think on it. What you do with it. Where you go with it. Who is the beneficiary of it. You see, because we like to be the beneficiary of everything. Amen? When I get asked, you know, what I want for dinner, I don't think automatically what you all want. Okay? I think, no, well, I'd like. When I get asked what I'd like for a Christmas gift, I'm not going, well, you just get whatever you think I need. I'm like, I go through my Bassless Pro Shop list, and I'm like, oh, I've saved that in my favorites. It's right there. You see, this sermon is happiness not because of circumstances being good, but because the God of our circumstances is good. Do you see the difference? The God of our circumstances is always good. He's never not good. And so Jesus speaks this truth to us. And so it really is completely disassociated from our circumstances. Blessed means happy, blissful, fortunate. But it's also been used, and this is the way the Greek writers used the word that was translated into Latin, from which we get the word blessed. It was used in that time to be unaffected by the world. It was used in the, in the constitution of the gods. So as Homer used it, and Plato used it, and Hesed used it, they used it to say, 
the gods are unaffected by the things on the earth. And so the gods were blessed. Do you get the picture? Isn't that exactly what we ought to have in Christ Jesus? We should be unaffected by the things of the world. It doesn't mean they don't happen, by the way. They do happen. But my strength, as your Bible says, comes from the Lord. Amen? It doesn't come from circumstances. It's in spite of circumstances. That's why Paul in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, he says, Now I speak regard to need. I have learned that in whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be content. Whether I have much or whether I have little. Whether I've been hungry or whether I'm full. Do you get the picture? He's expressing the beatitude attitude. He's talking to you and me and saying, guys, get your focus off of the world and on to the Lord. That's where this works out for you and for me. And this word blessed is an attribute of God. Your Bible says it over and over and over again. Psalm 68 flatly says, blessed be God. Amen? So if God is actually blessed, and we are to be little Christ, which is to be like Him, then don't you think He wants us to be blessed too? He does. Now comes the tough part. He may give me something He doesn't give you. He may give you something He doesn't give me. He may put into your life some circumstances that I can't handle, but you can. He may give you a material blessing that you can handle that I can't, or vice versa. He may give you a big house and me no house. He may give you much abundance in your cupboard. Mine may be thin. Do you understand what is being said here? So if your blessed state depends on what God has given you, you will always be disappointed and consequently not blessed. That's the picture. It has to be disassociated. doesn't mean that we don't desire good things, and it doesn't mean that good things aren't good. But it also shouldn't be the only way that we can walk around in a blessed state. And I know a lot of Christians about whom that's true. The first time something happens in their life that they don't like, well, God. Can't believe it. They grumble and complain and whine. They turn into Jews. <laughs> Go right back to the law. Stubborn, stiff neck. <clears throat> you believe he allowed that, and the Assyrians came, and then the Babylonians came, and they took away our crops, and they burned everything. And <sighs> you know what their response was when those things happened? They didn't turn to the Lord. They turned to the gods of the Canaanites. That's why Jesus is saying, this is the way to blessedness. Guys, you've got to put away the stuff. And you've got to focus in on the attitude about the stuff. And about the things. And about what's happening in your life. You need to go into the mode of being and not needing. You see, blessedness is a fundamental, elemental characteristic of God himself. God's always blessed. And He is always a blessing. And we're supposed to be just like Him. 
And so Jesus begins to put that out there for us. And it, and it goes beyond receiving and just simply experiencing. It goes beyond circumstances. It goes beyond feeling unblessed when we don't have something or blessed when we do. And they're paradoxical. I admit that very readily. And so look at these things just in, in a few moments of contrast here. First we see blessed are those who are disadvantaged. Now, if that's not a contrast that we can't wrap our heads around, I don't know what... Blessed are those who are disadvantaged. Go someplace in the world. Go to, down to Skid Row. Go to the Fred Jordan Mission and walk around to people who don't know. Well, man, you're sure blessed because you're disadvantaged. I, I am so happy I don't have a thing. People will think that you need help. And yet... In a sense, in Christ, it's absolutely true, isn't it? And here's why. And I want to give you just a little brief overview today, and we'll look at these in, in some detail next time as we begin the Sermon on the Mount. What he's really saying is, you know, people with a whole bunch of stuff are kind of hard to reach. People whose minds and heads are wrapped around their possessions, their things, are actually some of the most least blessed on earth. Why? Jesus is going to remind us, by the way, he does in Matthew's gospel, he does in Luke's gospel. What was the problem with the rich young ruler? His wealth got in his way. What was the problem with the rich fool? His wealth blinded him. What, what was the problem with the rich man who was in hell in Luke 16? He, he was there and his wealth actually bore witness against where his heart was. So Jesus says, blessed are the disadvantaged, because they don't have the problems that we have in our Western world of thinking God has blessed us by giving us stuff. Life's a lot simpler for the person who doesn't have anything. Can I tell you that it's my experience personally in doing works of evangelism all over the world that it's a whole bunch easier to reach people who have nothing than people who have everything? I've seen entire groups of people who have nothing, every one of them surrender to the cross of Christ at the simple preaching of the gospel because they're not held back by anything. They just recognize that they're destitute, deaf, dumb, blind, poor, and they need Jesus. But the person who has everything, not so much. Well, you mean I ha might have to give up my money? I might have. You mean I've got to get rid of that 56 foot motorhome? You, you mean I'm going to have to trust in the Lord with all of my heart and not lean on my own understanding and in all of my ways acknowledge Him? You mean i got to do that? Well, I don't know. That seems kind of extreme. Blessed are the disadvantaged. Blessed are the distressed. Doesn't that sound dumb? Blessed are the distressed. Blessed are the distressed. The people who are hungry right now, the people who have nothing right now. And the same thing is true. In, in this marvelous paradox, the same thing is true. Can you see it? Because anything's a blessing to them. Amen? I'm going to try and do this without crying. 
I've had little kids wrap their arms around my legs and beg me to stay in their country because I gave them a pair of shoes. I've had people follow me for miles on foot because they got a bag of rice. Blessed are the distressed. They actually see the real value of stuff. They're not looking at things and going, Man, I can't believe I don't have a 67-inch flat screen HD BVD KFC TV. Gee, you know, my friend, he's watching the football game, and I mean, he's got the 3D glasses. It looks like they're in your living room. Man, God must hate me. <laughs> Blessed are the distressed. You see the, the difference? It's attitude. You know what? Being poor stinks. Being hungry hurts. But it sure keeps a lot of things out of the way. Kind of simplifies life. That little guy about that tall weighed about 100 pounds, soaking wet. Told me, he says, you know what? You people in America have all kinds of stuff, but you don't own any of it. At least we own our hut. A little simpler life. And again, nothing against having wealth, nothing against having prosperity. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I'm saying that stuff, Jesus said, can get in the way. It can keep you from understanding that you are blessed. And then finally, and we'll wrap it up with this this morning, there were those who were detested. They're blessed. Now, we hate that, amen? You ask somebody if they want to be unpopular. Just do a little survey right in your neighborhood. Hey, I was just thinking, wouldn't you like to be unpopular? They'll look at you like you've got third eye, middle of the forehead. Detested? And yet Jesus said, you're blessed if people hate you for his sake. That they really don't like you. That they even say mean things against you. And so as we pick up this story next week and move on into the Sermon on the Mount, I I think there's some things that we can draw from it this morning. You, You see, we have a pretty clear picture of the law and grace here, don't we? The law says if you do this and you do this and you do that, then you'll have this. And grace says if you have Christ, you have all you need. The law says if you keep this list of rules and regulations, then you'll be powerful in the kingdom. And grace says that the most broken among you are actually the richest you know. It's a clear distinction between those two places. And so what Jesus really says to us is if you claim to follow the Spirit without obeying the law, then you're a liar. If you follow the letter without being in the Spirit, then you're a hypocrite. And the only way to do both is to be found in Christ. To walk in grace. 
to possess faith. To follow the Spirit in the right attitude makes the actions of the letter correct. And the way you do that is by having your heart in the right place with the Lord. Not by having all the right things while you're on this earth. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we, oh Lord, we need help with this. Lord, I need help living this way. God, we need help as a church living this way. God, it, it's tough for us to be despised and detested. And Lord, to think of these things which are, are so much a paradox, Lord, they, they don't even make any sense to us in a human sense. We pray that you would keep us, Lord, from stumbling. We pray that you'd place us underneath that glory spout, God, where your Spirit just rains down on us the things that we need to know and need to be and need to do, need to possess. God, may we live out the Beatitudes. Would you help us with it? We need your help. We can't do it without you. Lord Jesus, change what needs to be changed in us. We pray for anyone here this morning that has never taken that first step of living this way, which is to receive you by grace and through faith. Lord, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord is that first step. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.